0: then, with confidence, drawn near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to heaven in time. Right now, we are going to turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. Let us go to the precious word of God that we have In this book of Hebrews. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which Uh, was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Verse 6. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year. Not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshipper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food. And drink in various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. If you're lost thus far, it's all good. We're going to break it down and we're going to study the Bible together. But just hang with me. This is verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not made with hands, that is to say, not of his creation, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through, the, through his own blood, which he entered through the, um, entered the, but through his own blood, he entered. Yes, that's good. Let's do this again. Verse 12, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling, those who have been defiled, sanctify uh, for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from from dead works to serve the living God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we believe that you change people that you can change people more than anything else can. So now, we ask that you would change people, that you would speak to your people, that you would open minds and hearts, and that we would be available and open to anything that you would have for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, I'm a very uh, modern person when compared to the Bible. can't escape that. Uh, I have been deeply edified through the writings and teachings of Christians two, three hundred years old, and also uh, these these documents compiled in the first century that we call the New Testament. I've gained, uh, I've had feeding from, edification from, and yet I'm a very modern person. I'm preaching with an iPad. That seem that ain't right, Pastor. Uh, I. Uh, I rise each day to an electronic time-keeping machine. I let it scan my face to verify it's me. I uh, am immediately plugged into the internet. I allow this tiny computer to access my electronic mail. And I survey pertinent text messages in my inbox. I even own cryptocurrency, which is a weird thing to say from the pulpit. I ride in a mechanical tube with wings, and I fly over great distances to any place that I want. Typically, each year, I drive in an automobile to get to places that I need to very quickly. And I'm even worse. Uh, The automobile that I drive uh, is a self-driving automobile. And um, before you judge me and put me on preachers and sneakers or something like that, just know that I purchased my robot car for that of the purchase of like a Camry, a Toyota Camry level. So stop judging me. I've been made fun of a lot of times at this church, okay? So um, on the highway, the the self-driving automation is terrifying at 70 miles per hour. You just got to trust the AI. So apparently I didn't take the AI series to heart very well. Uh, have you ever trusted an, uh, a robot with your life? If you have used traffic lights in the past like 15 years or driven on, uh, flown on an airplane in the past 15 years, you, there's a lot of trust going on. So much of how we live is built on tech, so modern. Even now, the electricity carrying my voice, these lights, I'm being recorded to to post on YouTube, on the internet, uh, in a video format. I'm a very modern person. So when I read this text, it's weird. It's old. It's foreign. It's distant because I read it like a modern person. And so do you. So much so that when I read the entirety of a passage like this, I almost have to come up for air of the 21st century. It's, it's like, whoa, what, are these, what is this dusty stuff? The rods and the cherubim and, and the curtains and the blood and the altar. What is this stuff? And I think that's a natural response to an ancient text like this. It feels unrelatable. So what then? How do, we, how do we proceed? This is the word of God. What do we do with these feelings that inevitably come up when we read a passage like this? You could say, it's so strange, so foreign, so weird and so distant, this blood, these priests, these rituals, these animals, tables, candles, curtains, cherubim, so far out, so weird that these things are so far outside of my experience that can't have any relevance for me in the 21st century. Let's maybe not read old books like this, And rather, let's turn to more modern things, modern writers, modern ideas. Let's turn to something more contemporary and forget all that. That's one way. Another way, and I think this is the way that the author of the book of Hebrews wants us to respond, is, I believe in a God who is sovereign, who rules and governs and guides. So if there is a period of history reflected in the word of God, especially, I should think about the way God related to people how was he involved it's not my period but it's significant god was involved it didn't just happen with that attitude with that posture we can ask questions like what is god's self-revelation here why did he do that what did He do next and what age or epoch of god are we in now it's all belief in the providence of god within human history see for christians History is really important. I'll reference a podcast that I was exposed to of a uh, sort of a church-curious atheist who was exposed to Christians and different churches. And he, he, he said, you know, the main difference between Christians and people that aren't Christian is that Christians are really interested and invested in history. We study it because we are connected with it, because God worked in history. I don't know if you know this, but a lot of worldviews, they bypass history. They just go, our stories of the divine, like Vishnu, for instance, Vishnu incarnated into a a, a blue bull. This is from the Vedas, from um, some of the Hindi scriptures. Vishnu incarnated in myth time, not in history. And Christians, y'all, are like, "Mm, it better have happened in reality, otherwise mm, I don't care. It better be real, because we are not just playing at family tradition or subculture in grouping here. God entered into history, shapes history for our salvation and for his glory We are believers in a real God who really moves. And his word entered into history in the Old Testament. And he did mighty works among his people. And he came into real human history in the flesh. Quick summary thus far. We read a passage like we had today in Romans chapter 9. And we go, it's weird. It's distant. It's foreign. What do we do with it? Option one, it's irrelevant. It's old. Can't have anything to do with it. I'll just think about modern writers, modern things, modern events. After all, I am modern. Another option, another way, and the the way that we're going to press into today is God is on the move really in history with specificity, with intervention, and the way God changes things in history can matter a lot. So let's delve into the word with that posture here. Let's start at the beginning. Verses 1 through 7 are the setup, the facts that set you up for the interpretation. Verse 1, there's a sanctuary, and you can follow along as I'm kind of summarizing this. There's an earthly sanctuary. Verse 2, it had an outer part with a lampstand and a table and some bread called the holy place. Verses 3 to 5, there was another room behind the second curtain called the holy of holies, and back there was an altar. It was like a chest, and in it were sacred relics. And above the altar, you see carved cherubim. Verse 6, all the furnishings are in place. The author describes the activity. In the outer room, the priests went in and out, and they were doing acts of worship that were appropriate for the people at that time. And then in verse 7, the high priest, once a year, goes way in the back through the second curtain to the Holy of Holies, where the glory of God resides. He goes with blood for his own sins and the sins of the people, and he makes reconciliation for a year's worth of sinning. So the point of all that stuff seems to be God's in the way back in the back room, and you don't get to go to him ever if you're a normie citizen. The priest can get a little closer to God, and the high priest gets to go. One guy gets to go all the way in once a year, and he goes shuddering with his hands full of an animal's blood to cover himself and others. That's a pretty bleak way of relating to God, don't you think? He's far away, and verse 8 reveals the interpretation The meaning behind all this. And to note, the author says here in verse 8, the Holy Spirit is signifying this. Not Moses, not the law, the Spirit of God. God is signifying what? You ready? That the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. What? What does that even, like, let's, what does that mean? <laughs> let's break it down. The Holy Spirit, God, is signifying, is purposefully communicating this, that the way into the holy place, the way into proximity, into intimacy with God, has not been revealed while the outer tabernacle, the temple, is still standing. This is very intense. If you're an ancient Jew, you are highly triggered at this point. This Jewish author of Hebrews, speaking to other Jews, is alluding to a future temple destruction, and he's saying, God will do this, and God wants to do this. The destruction of the temple. And In fact, the fact that the temple is still standing and functioning here in this passage, not yet destroyed, is a symbol for the present time. So the present time is what? Stick with me. Rattle this out with me, okay? Let's, let's get this. End of verse 8. we got a reference to time. The present time. And again, it says the outer tabernacle, the temple, is still standing, which symbolizes the present time. And what is this time like? Verses 1 through 7. Explain it. Practices characterized by distance. Ritual. Earthly priesthood, blood, and the fact that only one guy gets to go all the way in. That's the present time. That's what the time is like, and it's not unimportant. It's providence. It's purposefully distant. The distance signified within the temple practices is under God's providence, is what this passage is saying. And the fact that it's not yet destroyed is under God's providence, and him now bringing it all to an end Prophetically prophesied about providence. Let's keep reading. You're going to see something amazing. Verse 9. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. The NIV puts it as a new order. It's a rare Greek word. It's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. It means a setting straight, a bringing things into line, a new system, a new order, a new way of relating to God and each other. And it's something totally new. So the author is saying this old way that seems so strange and so distant and so foreign is in fact strange and distant. And, and God means for it to fall away when a time of reformation comes. And the big question for us as we read this is what separates, what divides what he calls the present time and the new order or a time of reformation in verse 10? He probably guessed it. Here's the answer. But when Christ appeared, it's the very next verse, the whole book of Hebrews is written to describe the move from the one To the other. The header of this passage is the old and the new. That's what this book is all about a move from the present time, as the author describes it, which is ritual distance with God, to a new order, which is being able to draw near to God. And not just being able to, not just having permission to, but God wants you to because of Jesus, through Jesus, who is bringing a reordering of all things. A new covenant. And before I preach and just gush over the beauty and the substance of this new covenant, we have to address something, little historians. We have an inherent problem here. If you're a wee uh, scholar or historian, maybe you picked it up, the author of Hebrews is writing 20 to 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So Christ already came. So what does he mean the present time is marked by distance from God? Didn't Pentecost happen at this point and stuff like that? The author gives us the answer in chapter 8, verse 13, the verse that precedes, directly precedes everything we read today. This is verse 13 of chapter 8. When he said a new covenant He has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Let's continue to study the Bible together. Let's break this down. A new covenant is in quotes in the Bible. Where's the quote from? Jeremiah 31, 31. God promises to his people a new covenant coming in the future. Happened to be 500 years prior to this moment that the author of Hebrews is writing. And the Jewish Christian author of Hebrews is saying, it's finally happening, emphasis on the ning. It is becoming obsolete and is about to disappear. The author prophetically is saying the process has begun and God is making and about to make the outer tabernacle disappear. And it's already obsolete. He speaks of it like a process God is sovereign over within human history. And guess what? He was right. Here's the ancient history. And it was a process that took about one generation, 70 years. Christ comes into the world as the high priest. He offers up his life as the sacrifice. He enters into the Holy of Holies once for all with an eternal sacrifice. So you don't have to do it yearly. Now we're at 30 AD. The temple's still standing. The sacrifices are still being made in Jerusalem. But Jesus had done his work. He's already leveled the blow. The veil was rent. The axe was laid to the root of the tree. And he's back at the right hand of the Father. Now what? Word continues to spread throughout the first century in the Mediterranean basin about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Stephen gets himself killed by announcing that this temple, this Jewish temple, is over. Questions abound amidst the earliest uh, Jewish Christians Christians. Are we Jews or aren't we Jews? Is the church part of Israel or not part of Israel? How Jewish should we be? How should Jesus be emphasized over the Torah, if at all? These are real questions that the audience of the book of Hebrews are asking. And then in 70 AD, God ends it. He ends the whole conversation. The temple is leveled by Titus the Roman general, and there have been no Jewish sacrifices ever since. So even if they refuse to recognize Jesus at all, God forced the end. He ended it. He forced it, so much so that a council in Jamnia was held in 90 AD among Jewish rabbis, and they asked, who are we? What shall we do now? Who shall we be? Our temple is gone. The animal sacrifices are gone. Should we reconstitute a priestly order? Do we have sacrifices in Corinth and Athens and Alexandria? What does it mean to be Jewish? This was a mega crisis for them. And so they created reinterpretations. That if you go to the Temple Israel or Temple Aaron today and ask rabbis and Jews, where are the animal sacrifices? Where's the tabernacle? Where's the Holy of Holies? How can one possibly obey the Torah in a situation like this? They will give you reinterpretations that enable the present, contemporary, modern, religious, traditional experience to fulfill those forms with a different thing. It's the only possibility there was. God said, I'm doing a new thing. Prophesied about 500 years prior to the book of Hebrews. And it made sense to some It made sense. The signs of the times made sense to those who saw Jesus as the high priest, ushering in this new covenant. He had finally come, but the Jewish people, by and large, didn't get it, and God forced the end by destroying the temple prophesied about here in the book of Hebrews that we are reading about today. So we're studying the Bible right now, and we're doing expository preaching in the book of Hebrews, going line by line, seeing what the Bible says to us, listening. But also, something to learn here. When we encounter strangeness in Scripture, the answer isn't, it's irrelevant, but rather, what's going on here? We can ask questions like this How can I be more of a a historian, a Christian scholar? How can I press more into that God is sovereign and on the move in history with specificity, even if I am so modern? And people of God, do not be fooled. Do not be fooled by those who talk about how far we've come in the industrial revolution or since the Enlightenment. How can you believe in an old-fashioned ancient religion? It's 2023. I was really helped this week in thinking about and meditating on how inconsequential modernity really is. And if, if you play a few kind of fun mathematical games, it's amazing how few generations of man there really has been thus far in history. If you look at the current population and just try to add up, there's a few equations to it. If you try to add up, how many generations have there been that would lead to 8.59 billion people? There haven't been that many generations at all even including war and famine and plague. The reason this old text is so relevant for us is because the one thing that our medical discoveries and our technological prowess cannot touch is a guilty conscience. What scientific theory, what invention, what psychological therapy beyond masking our pain our inner pain with pharmaceuticals can really touch has any bearing on how to clean our conscience so that we may go home to the father be home with the father my faith is not about the substantive difference between a chariot wheel or a tesla or a parchment or versus an email on a computer the contemporary trinkets that we own and use they will be thrown away have you ever been to an estate sale you guys been to one an estate sale our stuff will be thrown away and outdated all of our stuff that we get so excited about every year our junk doesn't matter bye-bye Our faith, rather, is more concerned with what we do with a chariot wheel or a Tesla or a computer. What we do with our life. Modernity doesn't have any bearing on the real stuff of life. We maybe get an extra 20 years, which is great. Air conditioning, new cancer treatments, serious upgrades. For real. I don't mean that sarcastically. But ancient people... Modern people and everybody else to come after us, super modern people, will have to deal with the real questions of life at our core. Like, God, how can I get right with you? How can I get my conscience clean when I've lived a life so long defiled and still defile it? One of my favorite songs has this lyric, um, Can I be forgiven from a lifetime of madness yet to cull?" It's not a Christian song. It's just a, just a song about the, obs- like the human experience. How do you get right with God when you have a dirty conscience? How do you restore and reconcile relationships so that they are what they're meant to be when there has been so much alienation through sin? And the answer, the glorious answer, is right here in our text. It's so good... Let me read these last verses with you this morning, uh, 11 through 14, one more time. And as I read them, just pray with me. Lord, use the moment. Please use the moment for your church. Pray for the people around you, if not yourself. Do something in the hearts of your people that we can't command, that we can't control. Only you can do it. And this is the way, Christians, that the, that the Lord works. The holy, inspired word of God spoken and... The Holy Spirit uses it and takes it and shapes it and makes it life-giving and powerful in us. Many of you are defiled right now. Whether it's secret stuff or stuff maybe out in the open, like you just blew it last night. And you can hardly talk to each other on the way to church maybe. Or you're way out of line with the kids in the way you spoke to them. Some of us at our workplaces Things weren't quite above board in how we handled it, or our pride it just flared, the flesh. And uh, you feel defiled, you feel dirty, and you, you know that there was wrong done. And you come into church and you see people closing their eyes and praying and singing and communing with the Lord, and you just feel 100 miles away from the Lord. There's no way, there's no way you're going to be singing and, and taking part in the worship of God like that. And you're sitting there right now and I want to announce for you, I want to bear witness and, uh, to the truth, to the hope of the truth that we have, that God could do it. He can cleanse your conscience in Jesus' name. He can cleanse our consciences and we need him to because as long as we insist, each of us individually, as long as we insist that we deserve distance because of our shame, the enemy wins. Church becomes ritual. We remain distant. We don't draw near. And so we remain in sin. But when Christ appeared, and this is verse 11, when Christ appeared as the high priest, as a high priest of good things to come, and they've come now through him, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through, the blood of, through his own blood, We're talking about the infinitely valuable blood of the Son of God right now. He entered the holy place once for all. That's the true tabernacle in heaven. Having obtained eternal redemption, not yearly, but eternal. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, that's all that could happen through animals, Animals got accepted as ceremonial cleansing, but not conscience cleansing. How much more, and here's the key verse, add this to your memory stock, if you will, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. They knew, the ancient readers, you know and I know, that the blood of animals doesn't cleanse anybody's conscience. People all all over the world today are desperate for a clean conscience. You can explore other worldviews. You can become very knowledgeable. You can take trips to foreign cities and have new experiences. You can spend a lot of time with your kids. You can be a good parent. You can give a million dollars to a charity of your choosing, whether locally or something like World Vision. You can serve at a soup kitchen on Thanksgiving. You can serve at the hospitality team at Mercy Hill, and you're still going to feel like that scene in McMeth. Darn spot, get out from me, and it won't go away, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's why verse 14 is so glorious. It's just glorious for us within our human experience. Do you want relief in life and peace in death? When you're at a church long enough, or part of a larger community of any kind, you come to hear a lot of death sentences. Why? That's what happens to us. I've worked here for a handful of years. We've got about 1,500 people in and out of our church sites. Inevitably, some people are delivered the sentence that there are inoperable situations. So as Christians, we pray. And we do see unbelievable healings of the Lord faith-encouraging healings. And we also see death, which is a part of our current predicament as a human race. And when we see him face-to-face, I believe that part of our predicament will no longer be. But until then, when you are told, we can't operate on this, what at that moment will you want more than anything else beyond your healing? You will want cleanness before God. You will want the terror of meeting a holy God to be lifted from you, that you might die in peace if you must die. And it's offered, folks. It's offered. In verse 14, I have a free gift for you this morning. In verse, in verse 14, and it is the new covenant permission to let God cleanse your conscience apart from your effort. You can't do anything to get your conscience clean, and therefore God comes to do what you could not do, putting his own son to death, that by his blood, apart from any merit or any worth of your own, he might bathe your conscience clean, that you can lie there and say, I have led a life of sin like that thief on the cross. I'm so sinful. All I've ever done is sin." Is there any hope for me? Because of the blood, you can hear these words today. You will be with me in paradise. People of God, our Lord not only invites you to draw near, but he wants you to draw near. Let him in this morning. You've heard some truth, and we'll stand soon, and we'll we'll sing of that truth, declare it in song. And as we do, Let the Holy Spirit work. Do not let the enemy have the last word. I'll invite the band up at this time. So just be thinking about your own heart and the hearts of the people you know. Our God is real. Again, we're not playing at a subculture. We're not. um, This isn't just family tradition that we're doing here in this room. We believe our God is real and can answer us and address our sin this morning. Don't hold on to the story that you are so bad that you ought to not let him cleanse your conscience. Yield your heart to him now. Taste and see that the Lord is good. About every week at Mercy Hill, I'm in a privileged position to be able to hear stories of the way that God changes people. The way people come in and hear the foolishness of preaching and hear the word of God spoken And they are changed. I love being a part of a church that is rife with stories of people coming into the presence of God and being changed by Him in ways that humans couldn't do. I'm encouraging you now to let Him work in you. Whatever calluses or pride or whatever religiosity that you have built up, know that the Lord wants to commune with you personally, specifically. And... He is a being that has infinite bandwidth. We have limited bandwidth, so we have to choose the people that we really have a lot of affinity for and that are in our inner circle. God is infinite and loves you specifically. He knows you specifically and has been chasing after you this hound of heaven. Let him in. Let him bring the refreshing that your soul longs for break down your walls with him. The many walls, the many curtains, the many siloing and different rooms, that's the old covenant. Let his new covenant in. And one thing I've encountered as a pastor is um, people who have lived in a pattern of, of the flesh and the pattern of the sin and, and they're they're compelled by the Spirit to walk in step with the Spirit and live this new life, this regenerative life. They, there's a fear there and they go, What would it look like to have a clean conscience and not live in shame? What would that next life look like? So let me talk about the new covenant just for a moment. What that could look like for you. Hebrews 8, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. Verse 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That's the new covenant that our high priest ushers in. He won't even remember the sins. So it's, it sounds like I'm making it up, like just to feel good. This is the worldview that happened in history because of Jesus. Just give in to him. Let him do his work. He's been chasing after you for so long. In his new covenant, God's law, which was formerly external, the law pressing down on us outside us, God says, I'll write it on the inside. On the heart and put in the mind. How's that? That's God going in, shaping us by His Spirit so that we love it, so that we love the things of God. And we look at our sin now and we say, Why would I want to lie? I have God. Why would I want to commit adultery? I have God. Of course, I want to worship Him and keep the Sabbath holy. Of course, I want to commune with Him on the regular. Why would I want to steal? I have God. I love the will of God. That's Christianity. Christianity is not a list outside us, pushing down on us, making you do what you don't want to do. Christianity is God taking the list, going inside, and in love, changing you, writing it on your heart, making you a new person so that you begin to have affections for Him that are so transforming that you fall in love with his will. And if you like theology and big words, here's the the theological jargon that I want to end with to encourage you today. The new covenant is the purchase of our justification and our sanctification. God acquits us, he reckons us righteous, imputes to us the righteousness of his son, and then he moves in on us And he begins to make us holy and bring us into conformity to Jesus Christ by his Spirit. That's the new covenant.